Hi everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopez, and today my guest is Dr. Deborah Lieberman. She is an associate professor of psychology at the College of Arts and Sciences of the University of Miami in the U.S., and she recently published a book called Objection, Disgust, Morality, and the Law, which we'll be talking about today and we'll be focusing our conversation on the emotion of disgust and how that gives a basis to the development of certain aspects of our moral systems and also our legal system. So, Dr. Lieberman, welcome to the show and I hope you're doing well. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Oh, I'm looking forward to it as well. Thank you so much for taking the time. Okay, so I guess that the the thing we should start off with is a little discussion about emotions, because emotions are not really what lay people, let's say, think they are. Because when people think about emotions, they usually associate them with some sort of uh, metaphysical things that go around here. But uh, from an evolutionary perspective, uh, they really are tools that our cognitive system has to try to solve uh, some evolutionarily relevant problems, right? Yes, I think you started to explain it exactly how I would. Um, so as an evolutionary psychologist, I tend to think of emotions as types of software programs. So types of information processing systems that, like you said, respond to situations uh, that repeatedly affected uh, our ancestors' survival and reproduction uh, and caused us to behave in ways that, at least at one time, were adaptive, uh, allowed us to kind of see our way through a significant problem, have a better chance of, of living uh, and surviving to see the next day. And so uh, the question is, what were those circumstances and situations in ancestral environments and what are the programs that evolved to deal with them? And so you're right, I think that most people, when they think about emotions, think about some type of metaphysical, you can't feel it, touch it, it's just, it's, you can't describe it in any type of physical language. Um, but I don't know that that is a, is a plausible scientific way. And I think, you know, everything is physical. And the fact that we feel certain ways is very much guided and governed by our, our operating system, our, our, our neural circuitry. So, so, yeah. So for discuss, the question became what kinds of problems did our hunter-gatherer ancestors, and likely before that, uh, face? And what does disgust map onto? And so that was one of the starting questions. But you're right, I think that uh, to begin the discussion, getting everyone on the same page, that the brain is a physical system, that emotions are a type of program, um, and that it's not very clear when you start to assign certain feelings and sensations as emotion versus cognition. Intuitively, that might make sense. But at the level of neurons, you know, the level of information processing, the business of neurons, uh, it, that distinction falls away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I was talking about emotions as some metaphysical entities. That is what how most people look at them. Because when I talk about emotions with people, uh, the way you put it, 
people get really frustrated really easily and really quickly uh, and sometimes I get frustrated because they get frustrated and I simply say, oh, you know, because we're Portuguese, we're from Southern Europe and another people and another people that is from Southern Europe are the Italians and probably is because they put too much emphasis on emotions that then they create mafias. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> No, but I think that it is a, it's a challenge because evolution didn't necessarily build into our, our psychology, the, the knowledge of why we have the psychology and the circuitry we have. And so a lot of the reasons why we possess a lot of the circuitry is foreign to us. And so in my class, when I teach these things, one of the points I'm always emphasizing to the students is you have to keep two things very distinct, two things separate. One is the reason why something evolved and then the nature of the program that brings about the behavior. And so, I mean, you can talk about, about love for your children and you can be, oh, I want to help my kids and I love them so much and be that as it may and as true as, true as that, that may be, uh, the reason for that circuitry doesn't ne isn't necessarily inscribed into my motivations, but rather the reason why I have those feelings is because of the feed the positive selective feedback process of having those feelings and then individuals directing more attention to individuals who had a greater probability of being uh, close genetic relatives. And so, but that's not in that's in, not in my calculus when I think about giving my son a meal. I don't, don't think, do, 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 you know, how related are you to me and do, 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 how, how much food should I be giving you? Rather, that's all handled by, I care about you. You seem hungry. Let me feed you more. <laughs> and so, but, so, it, so talking about the emotions and peeling back a layer of the onion to identify what kind of programs are underneath that are giving rise to these sensations. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that an evolutionary perspective allows you to peel back that layer with a bit of guidance in terms of what kinds of programs should we expect to see. And without that, without those guide rails, it, it can be a bit mysterious as to what's in there. Mm -hmm. Yes, so perhaps we should look at emotions as motivating systems let's say to lead us to certain behaviors being uh, being them avoidance behaviors or seeking behaviors or something like that so about the emotion of disgust that is the main emotion that you talk about in your book so it has to serve a function so from an evolutionary perspective would you say that it is a fair assessment to say that the function of disgust would be to uh, lead us to avoid sources of contamination? I do. I think that is part of the story of disgust in all of the, the ways that disgust uh, functions. And so um, as a researcher interested in disgust for quite some time and having a bunch of collaborators and colleagues, as you've mentioned, who are also interested in this area, one of, the, one of our goals, um, I'm speaking of Carlton, the co-author, was to take a step back and take a bigger look at what disgust might be. And so Paul Rosen, when he had started thinking about disgust, focused on food um, and 
And even though that's not where I had originally started as a researcher, necessarily, obviously food is associated with disgust. Um, I have focused more on what are the sources of contamination, uh, what are the things that could make you sick and that could possibly uh, cause the spread of bacteria, viruses, and all things that could uh, cause a lot of harm. But I've returned to the idea that food is really central uh, to disgust. And one reason is because if you were to start thinking about how our food psychology might work, it would seem as if it has, our food psychology has to think about the very general problem of what is safe to eat. And the idea that something might have, you know, blue-green hairs and fungus all over it, mold, and perhaps be a source of contamination, that's just one dimension that our food psychology has to consider when determining whether something is appetitive or aversive. And so disgust seems to be, while it's very much tied to avoiding contamination, I would argue that disgust is, in a very general sense, the negative end of our appetitive system. So that even if, for instance, I'm sure most people have had uh, the experience where they're eating pizza and they could keep on eating and eating and eating and eating or going to a, a buffet. And, and at first when you walk in the door, you get that first slice of pizza, you're really hungry and it's really delicious and yummy, yummy, yummy. Second slice, okay. Third slice, oh, okay. Maybe this will be the last one. Fourth, suddenly it's, you know, oh, I'm so full. And, and then finally it's, you know, that next one is like, if I have another bite, I'm going to barf. And so people often do say, you know, I feel so sick. I feel, oh, it's so gross. Don't even show me that piece of pizza. So suddenly now something that was, but the cues were using disgust to keep us away from consuming something, but something that doesn't necessarily have any cues of disease causing organisms. And the idea that disgust can be used in this way suggests that disgust is a larger part of our food psychology. Now, of course, and so what we tried to do in our chapter that talks about this is put together a box and arrow model, kind of just looking at what, how might information get processed and figuring out what counts as suitable to eat. And our main, you know, our first pass at it was to say, maybe we're assessing each substance for its sugar content, its salt content, maybe protein, amino acids, uh, and then plant toxins, and then bacteria and other microorganisms. And maybe all of that information gets integrated in order to assess the, the value of consuming a particular item. And many things can cause that value to go very low. Obviously, pathogens and disease-causing organisms, when they're present, will cause the value of a food item or an item to be consumed to go very low. But then also, you know, your lack of experience or plant toxins as well, or being already stuffed and not requiring any more nutrients, that could also cause the value of a particular morsel to go very low. And so we saw discussed not just as a pathogen avoidance thing, but more broadly regulating our consumption behavior, which, so I just have to say, ultimately we came full circle in saying, the work by Paul Rosin seemed to have been right on the, on, on the mark in the sense that he had identified food as this central system uh, that governed, that discussed governs. Mm -hmm. Yes, very well. So you already talked a lot about food and there are other domains that disgust 
is applied into right so for example it it is also triggered the emotion of disgust by things coming from the sexual domain and also from and also with people that are part of out groups because they can also bring sources of infection let's say to to our group and things like that right so it is not restricted to the food domain it's not restricted to the food domain. And so you bring up the issue of contact. So, you know, who is safe to, to touch and, and, and contact? And um, so I'm familiar with the research that suggests that just outgroup members in general do potentially pose threats in terms of communicating disease. Um, and while I tend to agree in general with those findings, there's always a question in my head of, is that always true? So if I'm a male and I see women from another tribe, am I really, am I grossed out by them? I just, I mean, I just, I don't, I don't know that that's necessarily the case. And so the, I, so I guess what I'm saying is that it's not clear to me whether the critical dimension is in-group, out-group, and for moral and coalitional reasons, which disgust ends up affecting our coalitional psychology, disgust could be could be uh, being expressed through through that route, or is it truly in the you might make me sick in the same way that if I see someone with boils and pus all over their face, it might make me sick, and so that that's a that's an interesting question that I that I still have. Um, but in terms of the other domain that you bring up, sex, yes, disgust is definitely another emotion that regulates mate choice, um, and it, it tends to keep us away, steer us clear from individuals uh, that we don't find sexually attractive. Mm -hmm. Yes, and uh, people that we don't find sexually attractive include people that are part of our kin, right? So I think it is important that in this conversation we address at least a little bit uh, the studies you've done, for example, in Israeli kibbutz, right? Because you studied uh, how co-residence uh, operates in the minds of people uh, and in this case, people that that, uh, that live together during a certain period of time, particularly during infancy and things like that, because uh, they get sort of, um, they process the information about people around them uh, and then disgust gets triggered sorry, in the sexual domain when they think about having potentially sexual relationships with people with whom they were brought up, right? Correct. So, um, so I'm happy to talk about uh, the, those studies, and, but the, the larger picture, just so I can frame what I was in, in terms of disgust in general, is that if you were to think about all the things that go into how you know, the decision about who, whether this person is a potential mate and sexually attractive to me, not to you, to me. And so kinship is certainly a huge dimension. So what is my perceived relatedness to this other person? But then there are other dimensions as well that are just, that also are important. So the mate value of the person. So, you know, if it's a female, how fertile, how healthy, if it's male, 
um, you know, thinking about perhaps his ability and willingness to invest resources and so forth, but also things like my mate value might matter, right? So how attractive I, I perceive myself to be or the feedback I've gotten from my social group that tells me uh, how interested other people might be in me, but also the availability of mates. So what's available? Who's around? Uh, you know, who do I have to choose from? That'll determine whether or not I find a given individual or it'll, it'll influence how attractive, sexually attractive I find another individual. But the kinship dimension that you brought up is you know, it basically turns an otherwise potential mate into uh, someone that we avoid like the plague. And one of the interesting, so this was overlooked for quite some time. If, in fact, if you go to some uh, social site textbooks and they talk about attraction and what are the three factors that are said to govern attraction to someone, it's uh, familiarity, um, proximity, and similarity. And so, so familiarity, similarity, proximity. And so, but who best fits that bill other than, you know, your siblings, they're right there. They're similar, you share genes, they're familiar, you've known them your whole life, and they're proximate, they're right down the hall. But yet, they're typically the worst, than, typically not the people we select as a mate. Um, although there are interesting exceptions to that, to that general rule. And so, how do you figure out? So how in the world does this aversion develop? And it's not an aversion that you feel walking around every day. It's only, like you said, when you think of actually, you know, having sex, someone makes a joke or someone brings up a topic, then it's like, ew, really gross. That's awful. Um, and so part of my research has been how do we figure out who our close relatives are? And so it might seem like a silly question until you think, other animals also do this, and they don't have language or a, as sophisticated and, and flourished a, a culture as humans do. So somehow even non-human animals are figuring out who their close genetic relatives are. And in, in social species, they're also, they tend to avoid one another as mates. So how do humans do it? And it looks as if, at least uh, for siblings, we are tracking who our parents are caring for. So we're tracking parental investment. So if I am walking around and I have accurately identified my mom, so who gave birth to me, who was the female who breastfed me most often, um, you know, who cared for me when I was sick and put me to bed and, and so forth. And so uh, if I've identified my mother correctly, and usually people would have, then any child that she gives birth to that child has a very good probability of being at least my half-sibling. And so that's one way to identify who a probable sibling is, is just figuring out who did my mom, who's my mom breastfeeding and nursing um, and caring for intensely. But what happens if you are that younger child and you're coming into this world and you're like, who's my sibling? You weren't around to see your older sibling being cared for as a newborn. So how are you going to figure out who's an older sibling in the world? And so I think uh, evidence suggests you're also tracking parental investment, but over a very long period of time. And so this is what's been called co-residence duration. So the longer you live with another sibling, the longer you live you know, in the same household, presumably, as your parents, and you receive care from the same two individuals, the more years that occurs, the brain says, you know, with each year, okay, you have a greater probability of being uh, a sibling. And so the research on the uh, Israeli kibbutzim, as you mentioned, 
This even happens with kids who are genetically unrelated. So on the kibbutz, you have kids who are, as a newborn, put into a house and reared together with other newborns. And there's a caretaker who may or may not be the mother or parent of any of the kids in that house. And the kids are raised, you know, they sleep. Uh, they eat and they are educated and they spend their day uh, basically with all the kids in the house. They are allowed to go home to their own home between four and seven, but they return back to the house to go to sleep, even as infants. And so what uh, a bunch of researchers have found, Joseph Sheffer and his colleagues, is that kids who are raised in this fashion tended not to marry one another. And so, but there are a lot of reasons why they might not have married. So also in Israel, um, teens go off to serve in the military uh, around 18. And so it could just be an opportunity. The real question is, do they get grossed out at the thought of having sex with the kids that they were raised with, their peers? And it ends up, they do. So, so in one of um, the studies that I did um, with Tom Lobel, we asked a whole bunch of Israeli uh, kibbutz residents to name all the individuals that they had lived with. And we found that the longer they lived with each uh, opposite sex individual, so for all the women who completed our survey or who were interviewed, the longer they lived with another guy, the more grossed out they were about having sex with them or doing anything sexual. And the same for the men, that the longer they lived with any of the women, the more grossed out they were. Mm -hmm. Yes, this is all very interesting. And so uh, le let's see if I understand it. We have this sort of innate cognitive mechanism uh, to process cues in order to try to identify what people are our siblings, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and this also goes, of course, through a developmental process because we, are, we have to be exposed to those people throughout a certain period of time, correct? But uh, apart from that, uh, do you know if people also pay attention to, uh, for example, phenotypic traits that might indicate genetic relatedness when they deal with other people? So, for example, do you know if they pay attention to the fact that uh, that person next to them uh, shares some physical traits with them? So I'm not, so um, to put my cards right on the table, I am not, I don't think that phenotypic resemblance plays a large role in how siblings detect one another. Um, the kibbutz studies illustrate this very nicely, right? So they don't share any genes. Presumably they don't share resemblance beyond their, you know, their larger gene pool. And so they're still developing these aversions regardless of resemblance. Um, it's not clear to me. So for siblings, here's the question I have. So I have done some research on this, but let me pose this more as a research question. It ends up that students of evolutionary psychology and inclusive fitness come to learn that siblings share 0.5 of their genes, right? So, but that actually means something slightly different. It means on average, they have a chance, you know, a 0.5 chance of sharing the particular genes that underlie uh, sibling directed altruism and so forth. But that's an average. It could be zero. It could be all of them. On average, it's about 0.5. 
And so the problem is, is that for siblings for whom they might not actually by by chance of the genes that ended up in the gametes, they might not share actually very many genes as their sibling. And so they might not share some of the phenotypic features as strongly as siblings who got maybe a greater complement of the similar genes, 0.75, let's just say. Yet the, there's still major problems with mating with a sibling. So there's not only recessive uh, mutations that are a problem, but there's also problems that are posed by pathogens in terms of why it's important to mix blood when you are uh, selecting a mate. One of the benefits is that you push pathogens who are always trying to exploit our biochemistry and reproduce themselves. Sexual reproduction prevents that. So it's it would seem to me that Facial resemblance is not, does not solve the problem of preventing some of these costs of inbreeding. And so even when I look a lot like you, you know, that's bad, but what if we didn't look anything alike and we were siblings, then it's still not beneficial to mate, right? So it's just not clear that it solves the problem. And that's one issue I have. And the second issue I have is, how do you know what you look like in a modern environment? I know people have, have commented and somehow think that they have dealt with this particular issue, but I'm not, I'm not satisfied with any explanations so far. In modern worlds, we know what we look like. We stare at each ourselves in the mirror all the time. Pass the window, you look at yourself. You know what you look like. And so that builds up an idea of, you know, this is what people look like in my world this <laughs> and so it's just not clear to me that you would have known what you look like in ancestral environments in a, as reliable a manner as would have been required for a system that's going to use some type of phenotypic matching at least for this type of phenotypic so facial resemblance matching in order to determine a degree of relatedness so I don't dispute that siblings look like one another, but I do dispute, and I, and, and I also acknowledge that how siblings resemble one another can vary quite a bit. I'm just, I question whether or not the cue of facial resemblance is, would have been reliable enough as an indicator of kinship. Now, there's another set of, there's a literature out there that shows that in fact, people who resemble one another are nicer to one another, right? So how do you square that with what I'm saying? And I think that facial resemblance might be having a very different effect on motivations to cooperate and sacrifice one's own welfare for another. I think that it's doing something different. It's not kinship but it's a different input into a system that's assessing cooperation. And so I can tell you that one of the papers that I recently put out with my student, uh, Joseph Billingsley and a bunch of other collaborators, we looked at how fathers identify their offspring. And in the literature, um, some of the folks who had worked on this early on found that the extent to which a man is certain his mate was faithful and how much 
a child resembles him, those are the two factors that predict how nice he is to his child. So the more certain, so if I'm a man, if I'm certain that my mate was sexually faithful and I think that that child kind of looks like me, I'm nicer to that child. And so it was assumed that this partner fidelity um, and facial resemblance were two ways that men figured out who their offspring were. And my student and I said, hang on a second, this seems to work in the domain of altruism, which is one area that kinship should be very much a part of, right? So kinship should affect altruism and those types of decisions, but it should also affect sexual motivations. And we were curious whether facial resemblance and perceived partner fidelity uh, also predicted how grossed out men reported being at their daughters. And it ends up that facial resemblance, um, when we collected our data, facial resemblance did not meet the criteria of, 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 of certainty or being able to say with any confidence that it's acute kinship. It didn't reliably predict altruism and it never predicted sexual aversion. So the idea that it had no effect in the sexual domain, but it did have one of four effects it was found to, to have an effect in altruism, suggests if it has a role, it might just be particular to a cooperation systems. So there's a lot of inputs into every system. Like we were talking about for the sexual disgust, it's not just kinship that matters. It's mate value, who's around, who's available, my own condition. And so for decisions about who to cooperate with, likely we're taking into account a lot of things, kinship being one thing, but also how much you're, you're likely to repay me in the future and the extent to which we tend to see the world in the same way and therefore uh, might make collaborations more useful. And it could be that resemblance is feeding into that type of system. It's an indication, it's, a, it's perhaps a hint that someone might see the world the way you do. Someone similar enough to you that maybe they're also similar in other dimensions. But this is, this is a hypothesis I have, and so this is something we're looking at. So no, I don't think that facial resemblance is a kinship cue. So I, I can say that definitively about what I think, and then we'll let the evidence, uh, we'll have to collect more evidence. Mm -hmm. Okay, fair enough. Okay, so returning to the title of your book, uh, Objection, Disgust, Morality, and the Law. So now let's get into the second part of the subtitle that is about the morality part. So, um, so disgust or the, let's say, the ideas or the thoughts that we get into our heads that are the result of the way our brains uh, react or have disgust reactions to certain things eventually uh, get imbued, let's say, with uh, moralistic functions, right? So you already said that uh, you, in the book, you talk about how it is applied to the sexual domain, to the food domain. Uh, what other types of things does it get? Does it get applied to uh, when we get when it gets to? Uh, operate at the basis of a moral system, let's say? Um, so that's, that's a large question. Um, let's see, where to begin? So it's, it's a long-ish long story. Here it is in nutshell version. So 
in order to explain how disgust affects the law, because it's very clear that a lot of the things that end up in our law are rules about behaviors that many find disgusting um, or inappropriate in, in some way. And so the question is, how does that happen? And when we sat down to write the book, we realized that you know we have to explain disgusts linked to morality. And as we, we started getting into it, we realized we have to explain what we think morality is. <laughs> and this was a big problem, <laughs> to say the least. So we thought, we thought long and hard about it. And I went back to the, the non-human non primate literature, uh, a lot of the work done by Richard Rangham, Michael Wilson, uh, Jane Goodall's uh, accounts of, of some of the chimps that she had followed and 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 so and then obviously with the writings of John Tooby the Cosmides on coalitional psychology and I should also mention uh, Rob Kurzban and Peter DeSholey had written uh, a lot on the mysteries of morality and what they view uh, moral condemnation and, and moral judgments as and so thinking about all of those things we set out to put together a model of what we think is going on and and here, the story is this. It ends up that males compete for resources. And so this might seem a strange place to start, but this is where our story started, which is that males compete for resources. Um, and they do so because in humans and many other animals, males with the resources are the ones who get the females. <laughs> that's, that's a short and sweet story right there. And so they're the ones who get to reproduce and they're the ones who father the offspring of the next generation. And so what you find is that non-human chimps, they protect their, you know, non-human primates like chimps, they protect their, their territories, they go on patrol, but they do more than that. And if, and if they only went on patrol to protect their own territories, perhaps we wouldn't have as, as much insight into human psychology, but they actually do things that are aggressive incursions. They'll, they'll go into enemy territory, they'll cross the boundary, uh, into the next group's uh, area, and they will try and pick off lone males, um, and they will try and drag them and they kill them. And so it's not just a defense, it's an offense. And the question is, what's going on there? And Rangham talks about uh, exactly what this is, and he talks about how it's a, it's a motivation to not only defend one's territory, but to remove the competition for resources. And I think that that particular tendency was absolutely inherited uh, by our human ancestors and part of our psychology today. So males have, and again, I don't think it registers consciously. So this is where this story, you know, some people might say, well, you lost me. And it's in the same way as talking about how degree of relatedness affects your sexual aversion. You're not assessing that. You just know, ew, you know, you're my dad, ew, you know, you're my sibling, ew. You don't have reason, you don't have access to why. And so our goal was to explain the why. And it does sound counterintuitive, which is that if males, in fact, have this motivation to seek out other groups to marginalize them and prevent them from gaining access to valuable resources, we might see this come out in interesting ways. So the idea is that males band together 
and they identify people to go after. And disgust gets into the equation because who are you going to go after? Are you going to go after the people you value highly? And so who do you value highly? You value potential mates very highly, you value kin very highly, your friends, cooperators, um, and so um, allies. You're not going to target them for exploitation. But individuals who you have a lower social value for suddenly now are people who are expendable, to use for lack of a better word. These are people that are not central to your well-being and therefore more likely to be raised as candidates or entertained as candidates to exploit especially if you're male and have tendencies towards trying to defend and acquire resources. And so disgust gets into this system by identifying individuals, for example, that you hold low sexual value for, right? So individuals who are not mates and who might find you as potential mates who you find, you know, disgusting to mate with, those are potential individuals to exploit. Um, so, you know, through look around the world today there are laws against homosexuality so the things that people are doing to homosexuals not in america um though i suspect in corners it's still occurring but you know around the world terrible things are happening to people who identify as as homosexual or gay and it's 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 i would argue very much motivated by a a sense of disgust and the ability of men in power to rally the troops get people to form a coalition to target and exploit those individuals. And so, um, and so I think that's what's occurred throughout, throughout history. And it's changed in, in the United States uh, almost overnight. And I would argue it's done so because our psychology is very sensitive to numbers. So who are you going to exploit? And so this sounds like a very strange question, right? Because people don't get up, have their morning coffee and think, who am I going to exploit today? That's not what I'm talking about. It doesn't register like that. But when you talk about things as being morally wrong and tar you know, saying that's bad, that's wrong, we should get them, this is where that system starts to uh, connect with disgust and connect with this coalitional psychology of trying to exploit, to target and exploit other people. Um, but in America, you find that, you know, so not in America, but our psychology is very sensitive to numbers. And so before the internet, before social media, the idea that heterosexuals far outnumbered homosexuals was, was, was available to everyone's perception. Right. So maybe you had one neighbor, you know, one person in your town, one person. In, like It was part of the psychology that they're just outnumbered. And so you can imagine an individual who is trying to target and, and target uh, and exploit minorities. And I, by minorities, I mean individuals or groups of smaller numbers, smaller formidability, lower formidability. Um, that would have been uh, that would have been feasible, sad to say. And but today, given social media right now, we now see, you know, there, you know, you might say everybody's gay. <laughs> you know, everyone. I mean, to our perception, the numbers of homosexuals, gay, I mean, LGBTQ, it's everywhere. But this has very much changed our perception of the formidability of this group and the leverage that they hold. And I think that you find that in the places where they're perceived to have 
a greater minority, a smaller majority, I don't know how you want to say that, but one way, their numbers are growing so much that they're no longer an easy group to target and exploit. And so therefore, they're a group to now reckon with. And I think that this has been one of the benefits of social media, is that it's now been able to give a voice to people who are minorities and perhaps, you know, it shows maybe skews their representation, but in this particular case, it was a good thing, I would argue, in the sense that now suddenly they're seen as people to treat equally and not target uh, for exploitation. And so so hopefully that's one, one example. So starting with the idea that males are after resources, they're sensitive to people who draw on similar pools of resources, motivations to slyly get rid of them and exploit them when they can, um, right, and so morality is kind of the cover that allows this, right? It's just, that's wrong. I don't have to say, I'm out to get them for my own benefit, and you should too, because boy, they've got a lot of stuff, and we could take it, and they won't draw on our resources. Rather, we just say, get rid of them. And so, it's, I think it's a very, very dark side of our psychology, but it is it is so present in our day-to-day -day discourse, I would argue, that every time we say that's bad, that's morally wrong, that person should be punished, what are we saying? We're saying that this is a target for exploitation. So anyway, that was what we tried to do, is draw the connection between um, what is morality in the sense of how do we assign social value to other people, how does it disgust down-regulate or cause that social value to go down, making certain groups of people now uh, potential targets of exploitation for a psychology that's out to defend and acquire resources. So there's your nutshell story. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it was great. It was great. Okay, so in, in your book, because I haven't yet finished it, I would like to ask you, <laughs> were you also interested in exploring, for example, uh, how things like from a cultural perspective, how things like religion might have contributed uh, to, uh, let's say, crystallize certain moral ideas that we had that were, that were derived from disgust in this case, uh, and even perhaps explore other venues into which, uh, uh, to, to, which to apply uh, disgust or trying to evoke disgust in people, for, for example, to be against uh, other people or people that were excluded from that religion or that religious sect. And I'm asking you this because I'm not sure if it's in the book, but since you talk about the law, it seems to me that uh, there are still quite a, f quite a number of laws nowadays uh, uh, particularly in countries like in, in, in the least developed countries, let's say, that derived from uh, laws that were considered religious previously. So we don't deal with religion directly, but I think that what you're talking about applies absolutely. Um, and so once you have any coalition, so you can take it a coalition, you know, based on shared beliefs. Uh, like a religious group, and suddenly now, you know, identifying types of behaviors of other individuals that are worth going after. So outgroups, as you know, outgroups um, in and of themselves pose potential threats 
in terms of resources. Uh, and so to the extent that they eat that over there, um, that, that whatever is not eaten over here, it, you know, it might be disgusting and therefore you know, wrong to eat that. And so it's a justification perhaps for going after particular people or draw, drawing a nice coalitional boundary. Um, no, I think that a lot of, and then you have the caste system in India, for instance, the untouchables, and so that's very much based uh, uh, based on disgust, disgust psychology. Um, so I do think that you find a lot of uh, the religion. I mean, not all religious features are based out of this, but certainly some are. Um, and you know, I, I imagine. So I was raised Jewish, and so we have a, a whole bunch of laws that seem to emanate uh, right out of disgust psychology in terms of you know eating milk and meat together. Um, you know, certainly what's consumable and what's not consumable. Shellfish. You know, so the idea of that staying clean um, and. So I do think that a lot of the laws you find, especially in religions, uh, some of them do seem to come out of the discussed psychology, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So would you say that laws that we still have nowadays that derive from discussed psychology, as you put it, uh, are no longer useful for us? Well, it's a good question. I would say we need to reevaluate laws that seem to be solely based on disgust or coming from uh, primarily a disgust psychology, evaluate them to see whether or not there are other principled reasons why those behaviors should be outlawed. And so, you know, coming from a, a harm and justice, uh, fairness type of uh, psychology, which I have to say isn't straightforward either because what's considered harm and fair and justice depends depending on who you are, your condition and how much you have. Um, but that, well, that's a whole other story. But the idea that are there different principles that we might be able to use besides disgust, especially given if, if we're correct on our story, that disgust is being used to target minority groups, individuals with groups with lower leverage, exploit them uh, and to make sure that they are no longer drawing on shared resources. If that's true, shouldn't we know that? And now shouldn't we try to eliminate from our laws anything that's, you know, directly exploitative of, of, of particular groups? It seems to me that that we should absolutely look at that. But that brings us to some very interesting kinds of behaviors that we might need to reconsider uh, in our laws. So incest. Um, so, I mean, I don't want to be the poster child for incest, uh, pro-incest, but maybe I, maybe I already am. Uh, the idea that we, what are the, why outlaw incest? And so, um, it just made me think of Jonathan Haidt's moral dumbfounding study with Mark and Julie, the siblings. Are you familiar with this, where Jonathan Haidt brings subjects into the lab and tells them the nice story about Mark and Julie and their siblings, and they decide that they want to have sex, and they're really careful, and they really love each other. They both want to do it. They're never going to do it again. No one's ever going to find out. And he asks his subjects, you know, what's wrong with this? And so after, after making sure that, you know, they use a condom and everything's fine and no regrets and there's no psychological damage, no one finds out, um, most people, it's just still wrong. And, and so the argument there is that there's something, you know, inherent in that particular act that causes people to still think it's wrong. Now, um, Kurt Gray has suggested in some of his work that perhaps there is still harm being done and subjects are figuring this out and this is why they're saying such action is wrong. 
I actually think that I half agree, uh, and I disagree with, with Gray, only because I do think potential harm is being done, but not in the way that people typically think. There's a harm to the subject for disagreeing with a norm that is established and shared in the entire community once they walk out that, those laboratory doors, right? So it would be strange if you had a subject in one of those studies say, huh, you're right, awesome. I'm really glad they went for it. That's really great. That's totally awesome. Like that response does not go over well, right? So the idea that other people now would know that you are, you know, the one nail that sticks up, so to speak, and you are the oddball who might be advocating for a different type of behavior than the group, that's a very dangerous situation to be in. And so I would suspect that subjects are left only to say that it is wrong by virtue of the fact of the concern they have over harm that they have over what might happen to them should they disagree. So that's a, that's a different story. But in any case, um, so the question is what harm uh, befalls siblings who, have, who get married uh, and have kids? Well, the argument is, well, now you run the risk of producing children with a lot of genetic defects and who are ill. Um, and so, okay, that, that is definitely a, a, a possible outcome uh, with inbreeding. But here's the problem with that argument being the reason to outlaw incest is because you now have a whole bunch of other people who have also an increased chance of passing on genes or having children who also have a greater chance of having some genetic defect or, or something go wrong. And so women over 40, right? So there's a risk to reproducing after 40. There are certain conditions. So Huntington's chorea is a dominant um, disorder. So that if you, you know, if you have the gene you will develop Huntington's chorea, which is a muscular, neuromuscular condition, um, and that gets passed on. It's only exhibited later on in, in life after someone has reproduced. But if you get that gene, you have it. That's, and, and, and that's, you know, and it's 50-50 whether you're going to get that gene if you reproduce and you, and you, you know, and you have children. So 50% for sure seems like a huge gamble compared with, you know, 25% possibly, you know, with inbreeding. So, I mean, you can you can actually identify cases where it's, it's perhaps even worse to reproduce. Yet, I don't think people want to go down that path of starting to outlaw certain types of people from reproducing, right? So, suddenly now it's going to sound very, very eerily similar to Nazi Germany, and we don't want to go there. And so... In, so you cannot outlaw incest based on just that. Um, and then you can talk about, well, you know, there's going to be issues with the family and the family system. And are you my brother? Are you my aunt? Are you my half? What are you? So it's just going to confuse everything. But, you know, children children tend to get over these kinds of things. And, and, and there's far more abusive family structures. So, you know, people who are alcoholic and drug abusers and, and you have just, you know, just terrible family, dyna or ter terrible family dynamics that occur with people who are not genetically related. Um, and so, again, how are you going to determine what's appropriate and what's not appropriate? In any case, yes, incest is still outlawed. And there's, you know, there's couples in jail right now for having engaged in, in you know, in incest. And I think we should 
question why it is okay to legislate someone's sexual preferences in that way. Mm -hmm. Okay, so just because I'm starting to get mindful of your time, Dr. Lieberman, I just want to ask you two more questions. Uh, you already talked a little bit about the example of homosexuality and now of incest. Uh, what other sorts of examples do you give in your book regarding uh, things that are outlawed in our societies nowadays that don't really make sense and that also derive from disgust? Um, well, let's see. Not, I mean, not too long ago, it was illegal for blacks to marry whites, right? So that the whole idea of mixed race marriages. That's no longer uh, in the U.S. today, but that's certainly part part of it. Um, so outside the sexual domain, you know, we talk about issues of profanity and free speech and what you can say, and the idea that a lot of discussed uh, discussed words, you know, you're not even allowed to say over the air. Um, so you know, George Carlin has a great bit on the seven words that you can't say, um, and all of them relate to disgust. And so I think it's very interesting that that, that, that would be the case, that, that they elicit disgust, and, and so therefore you're not allowed to even say them. They're wrong. Um, so I think that that needs to be reconsidered. Not that I want to necessarily live in a world where we get to, you know, you, you're bombarded by these terms, um, but, uh, but I just don't know whether, I mean, maybe one can make a case about harm to children and so forth, uh, but in any case, it's it's an interesting issue in terms of the things that you can say um, and, and obviously the, the people that you can have sex with. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the last question and before we go, and because I think that is it is very important for people to understand this, uh, when you say, for example, that we probably should revise some of our laws that are based on the emotion of disgust, uh, what you're really saying is that we should try to uh, look at them case by case, one by one, and, and try to evaluate on the basis of evidence and reason if they, are really, if they really should still apply in our world today with the, society, with the modern societies that we have because we are no longer exposed to certain risks, let's say. You're not saying that, for example, and I'm going to ask you this because there are people that uh, when they hear this conversation and they are exposed to the idea, oh, so there are laws out there that, that derive from the fact that we feel disgust from certain things and even from certain people because that, that, that is a very, very delicate subject, they would say, oh, so uh, this is an emotion that we should try perhaps to eliminate, but that's, that's not really possible. We, as we said at the beginning, emotions are a set of cognitive tools that we have and disgust can still serve its function, right? Right, so I think, like you said, case-by-case case basis. Um, disgust still functions in our personal lives, right? It, it makes sure that when I open my fridge, I'm not eating anything moldy or gross, right? And so it's, it's, it's directing me away from potential sexual partners that are not good for me, that I evaluate, are not uh, beneficial for me. The question is, do we want an emotion guiding laws that we know 
is only guiding and part of our, you know, our moral psychology because it identifies groups to exploit. If disgust is being used to target and exploit and marginalize, and if that's the only thing it's doing, then we need to evaluate it. Now, here, here's, here's, there's a caveat to all of this, which is that it is very possible that disgust is being triggered by harm, right? So, but when that's the case, let's go on the harm and not the disgust. So I would argue that, you know, to cleanse the law completely of disgust and reevaluate those situations and determine whether things we want to uphold as wrong are there because they prevent people, they prevent people from force, uh, you know, forcefully being doing things, doing things that, you know, they don't wish to do and they prevent fraud. And so to the extent that the law, you know, serves to, you know, prevent those, you know, to help us in those two domains, uh, preventing force and fraud, uh, we can look at those principles, but we don't need disgust to do it. So yes, I would say we do need to cleanse the law of disgust. Um, and there was an argument that I did hear that gets back to, you know, when people do hear this, they think, well, disgust is there. It just reflects the society, the culture's values. And if that's what the group wants, that's what the group should get. And I just want to, I mean, I understand that particular perspective, but I want to, I want to be very cautious about that perspective because what one group wants might very much be motivated by disgust and be there because it's exploiting a whole other group. And, you know, maybe if that, if the group says, yeah, we know, and that's what they want. I mean, who am I to say what's right and what's wrong in terms of the things that people want and, and, and the principles by which they want to uh, obtain them. But it seems to me <laughs> as a scientist that if now we know that disgust functions in this way, and if we're trying to move to a place of greater equality and greater freedom, that disgust belongs nowhere in the law. Okay, so let's end on that note. And Dr. Lieberman, I will leave links in the description box to your book, which I haven't yet read, but I already know it's great. So, so I recommend that people go check it out. Uh, and so uh, what are other places, particularly on the internet, where people can find and follow your work? Uh, the University of Miami Department of Psychology has uh, my lab and the lab of uh, Dr. Mike McCullough. Um, and so it, it uh, describes all the research we have going on there at the University of Miami. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Dr. Lieberman, it was really a pleasure to have you on the show. I, I really liked our conversation. Uh, and so thank you a lot again for taking the time to come on the show. And perhaps in the future we could have another conversation. I don't know. That sounds good. Thank you so much. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for watching this video until the end. I would also like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page and see if you can make a pledge there. I would really be thankful for that. And finally, I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons Karen Litzke, Anne Blanche, Per Helga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gelinas and Jim Frank. Thank you a lot for all.